0: This week on Myths and Legends, there are three stories from Korean folklore. On the first, we'll see that it's awesome to listen to stories, but not so awesome to murder them. On the others, you'll see what happens when a nobleman's lunchbox becomes a porta potty and how not being able to tell the difference between a cow and a human might be deadly for your whole family. The creature this week is a giant bird who's very bad at its job. This is Myths and Legends, episode 235, Ghost Story. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. As I said at the top of the episode, there are three stories from Korean folklore this week. They aren't really related to anything historical, so no need for a ton of backstory. We'll just jump right in with a kid who likes stories, as all kids do. It just kind of matters what you do with the stories after you hear them. What's he doing? The dad asked. The mom smiled, oh, you know, he's, that's a story bag. Story bag. Yeah, you know how we, a super rich family of merchants, only have one child and dote on him, telling him stories and stuff? The mom said. The dad nodded. Well, I just got him a bag. And whenever he hears a new story, he saves it and puts it in the bag. Oh, that's, that's cute. Yeah, I guess he is always asking people to tell him a story when he meets them. The dad said. Then, huh. But really, though, what is he filling up that bag with? It's actually looking kind of full. The mom looked to the small bag at her seven year old's side that was already puffing up like a balloon. The boy was pressing something down into the bag. Wow, yeah, really putting those seams to work, the mother said. Yeah, what is he putting in that bag? She looked to her husband. I mean, though, as a counterpoint, he's quiet, probably not hurting anybody. I say we let this ride. The father nodded and went back to his book. Safe to say, we change from when we're a kindergarten age. I wanted to be a paleontologist. Carissa wanted to be, quote, a horse-owning cashier with tons of bubble gum. She's actually, I guess, more consistent than me or the kid in today's story because she still loves horses and gum. The kid, though, was finished with his story hobby in a matter of months. Like so many kids' toys, the story bag ended up in the back of a closet. Or, in this case, hanging on a nail in the kitchen. And I should say, you'd think that the kid was jamming, I don't know, scraps of paper into the bag or something symbolic. But he wasn't. He was listening to the stories, plucking them, the stories, from the air, and putting the stories themselves in the bag. And you might be wondering, wait, are the stories actually alive? And if so, how can they live in a bag? The answer is, respectively, yes, and they can't. The kid, not wanting the stories to get out, ever, kept the bag perpetually cinched tight. So the stories suffocated, died, and became ghosts. The ghosts, though, also couldn't leave the bag. That did lead to a strange occurrence 10 years later when the family's oldest servant was tending to a fire in the kitchen hearth. On the day before the son's wedding, he heard whispering. They were whispers of murder. The servant gasped but stayed quiet. There was plotting. Assassins had infiltrated the house. He was half right. He tracked the whispers to their source. It was the bag on the wall. He reached up to loosen the knot when he heard the word, suffer. They would make the boy who did this to them suffer. Suffer like they had suffered all these years in the bag. They might not have been able to breathe or escape up until today, but they could hear. They knew that the wedding was tomorrow. And in the intervening decade in the dark, they had finally worked a few stitches loose. They were free now and they would make him pay. And they had some plans. I mean, if you're jammed in a dark bag with several similarly angry ghosts who have the same goals, you're going to come up with some plans. The ghosts, now that they were free, could transform. The next day, before the wedding, he would leave on his horse to bring his new bride to his home to be married. The first story ghost would change into bright red berries irresistible, dusty, horse manure-adjacent road berries that anyone would want to jump down from their horse to gobble up. The catch? These road berries were poisonous because they were a ghost that would wreck havoc on the groom's innards. In, like, a murdery way, and not in the usual way that road berries would wreck havoc on someone's innards. Then another voice chimed in. If that failed, then he, a second-story ghost, had another plan. He would become a bubbling spring, a spring that would be so cool and refreshing as to be irresistible, and when the groom bent down a drink from him, he would let the groom drink deep, and he would poison the groom from the inside. There was a short silence. That's my plan, the first voice said. No, the second voice said, your plan was to turn into berries and poison him. Mine is to turn into a spring. Totally different. Now, it's the exact same thing, but you're water and I'm berries. Like if you drowned him, that would be different or became a flood or something. Guys, a third voice chimed in. If both of you fail, that's where I come in. You know how a bale of hay is carried on a horse in this time period, so that when a groom steps down from his horse, he doesn't have to touch the ground? Yeah, the other two voices said tentatively. The third voice continued, when he does that, I will be hiding inside. I'm going to be a red-hot poker. There was more silence. And? The others asked. And I'm going to burn his foot, the third voice said. What? It's a good plan. Is it though? The first two asked, like you're just gonna burn his foot. And it's not like red-hot pokers can even exist in dry hay. Thematically, this doesn't even make sense. I feel like you haven't thought this through. Well, at least it's not another poisoning, the third voice said with a sneer. At least he was trying to add something creatively to this process. It's bad, though. We can both agree on that, the first voice said to the second. Are you guys done? Still another voice said, because the rest of them had a plan that would actually work. There was really no point trying to lure him to eat poison or something on the road, or, you know, burning his foot. Also, this ghost agreed with the first dude. The foot thing was an objectively bad revenge plan, by the way. The rest of them had already decided on turning into venomous snakes, waiting until the bride and groom were in bed, and just swarming them. Everyone gets a bite in, The architect of their imprisonment, the groom, dies a painful death. Let's not be selfish and overthink things, guys. The first three said that they were still sticking to their individual plans, but they also wished everyone success. Regardless, tomorrow, that kid was going to die. The servant dove behind a table as the ghosts fled out the loose seam, flying into the night, getting ready to put their plan into action. He knew one thing. He had to save the young master. The young master, the man who had been the kid who had collected the stories in the bag, sat atop his horse. It was nice that the servant wanted to come, but shouldn't he stay here? The young man didn't need a servant to lead his horse. He was atop his horse driving the horse. That was how it worked. The servant smiled and grabbed the bridle. He said he had raised the young man from a baby. Now the young man was going to leave the house. The least the groom could let him do was help him on his way. The young man relented. Uh, Sure, okay. But he had to keep up. The elderly servant looked with trepidation and determination toward the road ahead. Oh, he would keep up. As it turned out, the first ghost's gambit worked. Those berries, they looked delicious, and the young groom wanted to stop. No, the servant commanded as he pulled the horse onward. Come on, berries, the man protested, and there was only a little dust and dung on them. The servant kept talking, but didn't stop for a moment, lest the young man jump down and gobble up all those sweet, sweet road berries. The servant pointed to the procession behind them. They had berries or some type of food. Also, he was set to marry, shouldn't tarry, and instead be wary of those berries, dietary fury and dysentery. The kid looked at the man. The berries will give you diarrhea before your wedding, or not stopping, the servant explained. But on the contrary, the kid said, um, l- library, library? Emissary, what else rhymes with berries? He sat in silence for a minute. Then, yeah, we can keep going. That's what I thought, the servant said. He never stopped. He also didn't stop for the pretty cool and tempting spring, which had a gourd dipper just floating in it, asking someone to just scoop it up and slurp. The angry story ghosts were pulling out all the stops. The servant, citing once again, The risk of illness without all the rhyming this time also didn't slow when the groom wanted a drink from the sketchy pool. The groom would need to throw himself from the horse on his wedding day if he wanted some. So they continued on. When they finally made it to the bride's house, the servant laid out the straw mats and brought out the bundle of hay so the groom wouldn't have to touch the ground and then, whoops, oh no. He totally accidentally tripped and shoulder checked the groom sending him sprawling out onto the ground without touching the bale of hay. The groom stood, angry, but looking around to his wife-to-be's family surrounding the procession. He laughed, and they all laughed with him. The elderly servant breathed and told one of the other servants to go burn that hay bale. <laughs> you okay the groom asked the elderly servant after the wedding the servant was strapping armor to his chest Mm mm-hmm why'd the boy ask the boy said that he had been acting weird today that was all the servant smiled no no he was good they were all good here uh was the groom going to bed the young man nodded yep it was wedding night and all so you know good night the servant smiled good night he was proud of the person the young man had grown to be the groom thanked the man and then looked at him all right it was bedtime for everybody uh it was his wedding night so the elderly servant didn't need to stand outside the door the servant smiled of course not of course not he wouldn't stand outside the door he started walking away and then waited for the door to close The servant was being honest. He wouldn't be standing outside the door because moments later, the door exploded inward with a kick and a shout for all those story snakes to come get some. All he met with were awkward glances from the bride and groom. The servant looked all around the room. It was snake free. He relaxed his sword. Then he looked to the bed. He rushed over to the bride and groom, leapt atop the bed, and struck downward. Now, it would have been a legitimately good twist if one of the story ghosts had actually been in the form of the bride, but that's not it. The servant struck down at the snake, wiggling up through the hay, about to bite the young master. The servant ordered the couple off the bed, leapt off himself, and kicked the mattress aside. The floor underneath was wiggling covered in hundreds of venomous black snakes. All the stories that had been stuffed in the bag, clamoring to take revenge on the boy who put them there. The servant threw himself into the fray, slicing out at each of the snakes before they could strike at him. The husband and wife held each other close, as blood and snake pieces flew up from where the bed had sat. Finally, the sword swipes grew to be fewer and fewer. The servant panted. The groom shrieked as one snake lunged, but the sword pinned him to the floor, right in front of the young man. It was over. All the snakes were dead. The young couple was flabbergasted. What What was all this? The servant pulled up a stool, sat down, and sheathing his sword, told them the story of what he had heard coming from the bag in the old kitchen, and what lengths he had gone to to protect the young man. When the servant finished, he sat back, and between him and the young man was a glowing light, the story that had been told on that day for the first time. The young man reached up instinctively, pinching the light and grabbing his traveling bag from the shelf, and then smiled as he paused. Stories were meant to be told. They're meant to be passed between people, so everyone can enjoy them. Not hoarded away in the darkness so they can become angry and full of spite, the servant said. The boy nodded, relaxed his grip, and let the story float off into the night. As someone who tells stories for a living, I'm kind of a sucker for a story about storytelling. And I think that this one had a nice ending. Our next story is about a servant's first trip to the big city, but that will be read after this. First trip to the big city, huh? The nobleman said to his servant as the kid prepared him lunch. You know, they'll cut your nose off and soul. No, the servant said, maybe overdoing his reaction a bit. Yep, and they'll do it while you're still alive. They don't even have a reason for it. They just like to watch people suffer. The noble grinned. (laughs) Huh, stupid kid. The kid contorted his face and gripped his nose. Oh, no, the noble smirked. It wasn't lunchtime if he couldn't sadistically terrorize a servant. The kid ladled out the last and the first of the soup. He had to pay his own way for meals, something the noble hadn't told him until they were already on the road. So, even though he had to cook the food, he couldn't actually eat the food. He picked up the spoon from its resting place on the hot coals and dipped the glowing orange metal into the liquid of the soup. He coughed as it hissed to cover the sound, and he passed his master the soup. He told the man to be careful. It was hot. Yeah, it's soup. That's the point. The noble took a big spoonful and shoved it into his mouth. The servant feigned surprise and rushed to help the noble, but the man just sat back, his tongue in the air. The servant blew the soup until he said it was cool, but a drop of snot that dripped from the servant's nose into the soup combined with the trauma of pressing a recently red-hot spoon to your tongue, completely took away the noble's desire for soup. He managed to mouth a, you can have it, with his tongue out, and the servant downed it in a gulp. That night, as they camped on the side of the road, there weren't any places to stay between the noble's estate and Seoul, on a trip that couldn't be made in a day, the master snored, while the servant prepared for the day ahead. He looked over the rest of the noble's provisions. The lunch the servants back at home had packed for him. He really shouldn't, but... Yeah, he was going to have that one too. He was eating better on this trip where he hadn't packed anything than he had in months. A few minutes later, he looked down at the box of food he had just emptied. Hmm, this was a problem. The noble would know that his food box was empty, and there would only be one culprit. The guy who had actually eaten the noble's lunch. Oh, speaking of which, all this rich food was kind of speeding things along with him. He looked to the empty food box that told the tale of his guilt. Huh, he might be able to solve one problem with another here. Oh my gosh, what happened to my lunch? The noble said as he looked at the box full of something that was his lunch at one point in time. The servant recoiled at the smell. Wow, okay, yikes. That went bad so fast. The servant said the noble should have a word with the people who do his shopping. If things can spoil so quickly, they're not doing their jobs. The noble agreed and handed off the box to the servant. Go throw that in the river or burn it or something. It was horrible. It wasn't midday by the time the servant... The horse and the noble made it to soul. The servant kept up the act of jumping at every shadow in the street and recoiling from every person that passed them by. And the noble laughed, telling him to watch out. He'll lose his nose. The noble handed the servant the reins and pointed to a building down the street. This was as close as they could get with the horse. But he just needed to pop on down the street and buy that property near his house. Shouldn't take more than an hour. Watch the horse. The servant sat down in the street. Trembling, he said he would try. He watched the noble disappear down the street with a knitted brow and shaking hands. And the second the man was out of sight, the servant rose and walked the horse across the street. I want to keep the reins, but how much will you give me for this horse? Where's the horse? The servant heard a little over an hour later. He uncovered his face and felt his nose. Oh, thank goodness. It was still there. He told the noble that he had been so terrified after the stories his master had told him, you know, about losing his nose for no reason on the streets of Seoul, that he had just resorted to covering his face up until his master returned, just to be on the safe side. As for the horse, though, he had been holding the reins the whole time. See? He held up the reins that had been cut a foot from his hands. Oh, that's not good. The master was livid. No! No, it was not good. To be fair, though, you told me I would have my nose cut off. I was so scared, the servant said. The noble was furiously scribbling out a message on a piece of paper on the servant's back. The noble said he had to buy a new horse, but he could do that alone. The servant was to return home immediately. The servant felt the signing of the piece of paper on his back. He reached for the paper, but the noble took a needle and pinned it to the servant's cloak. The master said that the message wasn't for him. He said the servant couldn't read anyway. This message was for the noble's wife. The servant didn't need to know what it said. Go, now. He slapped the servant on the back of the head and pointed to the city gate. The servant took off in a run, holding his pocket so that the horse money wouldn't jingle. Yeah, it says, drown him when he returns, the monk said, as he munched on the honey cakes the servant had brought him. The servant didn't try to pay the monk for his services. Instead, he paid a woman milling some barley, and a merchant selling honey, and the man made some honey cakes with the barley. He took the honey cakes to the monk, who unpinned the note from his back. Sounds like maybe you shouldn't return, the monk said, and then glanced down, at the pile of honey cakes. Or, the servant said, sliding the plate of honey cakes and placing a quill on the monk's side of the table, maybe I should return? The monk stuffed another honey cake in his mouth and picked up the quill. My husband wrote this? The noble's wife said the next day, when she read the admittedly tropey, but effective note that her husband allegedly penned. The servant nodded he felt the man write it on his back. And then the noble sent him home right away. So he couldn't vouch for the actual content, but the noble said he loved the servant like a son. Why? What did the note say? This has happened at least twice on this podcast, where someone tries to pull a hamlet on an unfortunate hero, and the message gets altered in transit, leading to a drastic change of fortune. Like most murderous dads, The nobleman was livid to return home and find that the servant, who he had sent home to be killed, was now married to his daughter. The servant swaggered over to the nobleman. How's it going, dad? The nobleman gritted his teeth, fuming. The servant smiled. Well, it looked like it was time for a quest then. Similar dads have done stuff like send the kid on a quest for the devil's golden hairs. Didn't seem too hard. The nobleman chuckled. Now, why would he do that? Why would he send a servant on a quest when he had already given explicit instructions to have him killed? If he was worried about the optics of the situation, about any sort of repercussions whatsoever, he wouldn't have put it down in writing, right? The servant swallowed hard. Oh, drowning the kid would be easy enough. They threw some rocks in a bag, threw the struggling servant in the bag, and then, oh, lunchtime they looked at the wriggling bag by the riverside. Eh, probably wouldn't go anywhere. Now, this bit requires two levels of suspension of disbelief, if the kid was completely in the bag. Let's say that his head was sticking out, because when he saw a peddler walk by in an eye patch, he knew just what to say. Which, yeah, I don't know exactly what he said, because I don't know what you would say to someone to get them to willingly let you tie them up in a bag on the riverside but the servant somehow convinced the peddler, who couldn't see out of one eye, that the cure to this particular condition was in the bag. The guy was super excited for his cure when, sufficiently tied, the nobleman's two goons returned from their lunch hour. I'm just saying, I got a salad and a drink. I don't think it's fair to split the check and... Wait, that's a different guy, the first guy said. The second looked and shrugged. I Maybe... Maybe this guy is wearing an eye patch and he's like forty. The other guy was a kid without an eye patch. I'm a different guy, the clearly different guy said from the bag. The the one who was here said that the two men would cure his eye. Different guy not a different guy. Who's really to say? The second goon said. To everyone who was qualified to say that it was a different guy. He was hired to put a guy in a bag and shove him in the river. And that was what he was going to do. The guy in the bag looked around. Wait, what? Now, we could let this maybe, maybe different guy go and then uh, spend all afternoon looking for the other one and then maybe come back in failure to the boss. Or we could kick him into the river and go fishing. I know what my vote is. I would also know what my vote is, the guy in the bag said. The first goon nodded. All right, do it. They kicked the guy in the bag into the river and left to go fishing. What are you doing here? The nobleman screamed when the servant returned. He pulled some river weeds from his shirt. Oh, he was just back from the dragon's palace at the bottom of the river. The noble blinked. wait, did he say dragon's palace? Now, we're a couple of orders of magnitude away from a plausible story at this point. I chose this story because I thought it was fun and I really liked the beginning. But the servant said, yeah, the dragon's palace. He was surprised the nobleman didn't know about it. It was at the bottom of the river. Just when you feel like you can't go on, when you can't take another second without air, Just keep going. He plummeted right down there, because the nobleman put him in a bag full of rocks. That's how he discovered it. The nobleman had heard stories of the dragon's palace, of the riches and gifts and power contained therein. He asked this kid he had just tried to murder if he was being honest. The servant smiled. He was as honest as he ever was with the nobleman. The nobleman tore off his shirt, kicked off his footwear, and ran to the river, gathering up his whole house. They were going to the dragon's palace. As the nobleman's daughter rushed by the servant, her husband, he grabbed her by the hand. Hey, yeah, you probably should not do that. She was confused. Why not? Once everybody was gone, the two goons came back, arms full of fish. I'm asking, where where was everybody? What's going on? Hey, that's the same guy. They all walked slowly to the river where they found the nobleman's entire household drowned. The daughter collapsed in anguish, but the servant only shrugged. Wow, what a tragedy. Then, the servant went back to his house, that he now owned outright, because the nobleman put, I guess, murdering the servant above nullifying the marriage contract, and at least one of them lived happily ever after. The ending there, from the note, to the tricking the guy in the bag, to the drowning in the river, has been done before in this podcast. I actually think it's kind of cool though, that from Scandinavia, to Germany, to Italy, and now Korea, many of these stories share so many elements. It makes me think that there's something fundamentally human about folk tales. We have yet another story this week, but that, once again, will be right after this. You want some more beef? The man's sister asked him. He nodded, "Uh, yeah. This was fantastic. When was their brother coming to dinner? The beef was going to get cold. The sister shrugged. Last she saw him, he said he was going to be out in the field with the cows. The man, the protagonist, glanced out the window. Just cows in the field now. Huh. Wonder where the brother could have gotten off to. Then he looked to his dinner and froze. The sister looked up from her plate and saw the brother there in shock. She stopped chewing and the meat fell from her mouth. Oh no, no, not again. The man pushed back the plate and vomited on the floor. Why? Why does this keep happening? Why can no one tell the difference between cows and humans to the point that it's a major problem that humans keep killing and eating each other by accident? The sister shook her head. She had no idea, though, in retrospect, the revelation did help clarify some things, like how that cow was screaming with a human voice and saying stuff like, Stop! Why are you doing this? It's me, your brother! She said she thought it was like one of those classic cow tricks, you know? Where they make you think there's someone you know so that you won't eat them? The brother nodded and then stopped with a gasp. Oh my gosh. You know what I just realized? What if that's not a classic cow trick? What if anytime a cow pleads for its life and says it's someone we know, it's because it is someone we know begging for their life? and not an actual cow. And we don't believe them every time, because all of humanity has this weird cow-human face blindness thing. The sister... narrowed her eyes. Huh. You know what that sounds like. That sounds like cow talk to me. (laughs) The man chuckled nervously. Um, they were just talking about how humans couldn't tell the difference between cows and humans. That's right, and right now, you're sounding an awful lot like a cow. How do I know you're not just a cow trying to get in good with me, convincing me to eat my brother, coming after me when I least suspect it? These new ideas, they had to come from somewhere. My brother's not smart enough to think up something like that himself. The brother grimaced first, ow, mean. Second, he was her brother, come on! He rattled off a few family memories that a cow wouldn't be able to because it wouldn't know them and also because it couldn't talk because it was a cow. She shook her head and looked disgusted. She shuddered to think what a cow had to do to her actual brother to get that information out of him. She picked up her knife. The man grabbed anything he could carry and bolted from the house. the waves, the sun peeking above the horizon. He had left in search of a better world. Also, because his sister had been trying to murder him, because she thought he was a secret cow. Years later, he was still searching. He had been to land after land. It was difficult, even for him. But in the quiet times, he drilled himself on a simple truth. Cows can't talk. Any time a cow talked, it was actually a human begging for their life. The first couple times he tried to jump in and rescue the human, it hadn't gone well. The group turned on him too. Sometimes even the victim grew suspicious, pointing out that he was a secret cow trying to spread dangerous cow ideas. He had the scars from those first few attempts to remind him not to get involved. There had to be a land where people were people, and cows were cows. He looked back at his salivating shipmates and sighed, well, time to go. He looked to the shore. Sure, close enough to swim. He dove into the water and swam to shore. The people on the boat marveled at how fast a cow could swim. A few minutes later, and the man was sitting at a table, across from a man with leprosy who was just sitting there enjoying the sunlight. Or it was a cow with leprosy enjoying the sunlight. It was really hard to know the difference sometimes. The man with leprosy grinned at him, and our protagonist finished up his meal, which he really hoped wasn't people, and made to leave. when the man with leprosy struck up a conversation, asking what a man like our protagonist was doing out here on his own. The protagonist stopped. Wait. Did he call our protagonist a a man? How could he be sure? Sure you're not a cow? The man asked. Because you're a person, not a cow. The man, once again our protagonist, gasped. How did the man know that? It turned out the simple solution to all of this was onions. One version calls them Welsh onions. I don't know. But if someone eats onions, they will be able to tell the difference between humans and cattle. This man said he came from a land where people were people and cows were cows and what revealed that to them was eating onions just one time and they will be able to see the difference. He was working to spread the word about the food that would save them and reveal the truth but he could only do so much as a man with leprosy. People in these times, they didn't really want to get close to him. The protagonist said that after nearly being violently murdered in every land he went to, Leprosy was not something he was scared of at all. He went back to the man's house and learned all about the farming and preparing of onions. Everyone, I'm back! The protagonist called out. Months later, when he entered his village... He said he learned the most marvelous thing. He will be able to save them all. And he looked back at the village that was staring very intensely at him. He, uh, uh chuckled. Uh, guys, uh, I have the solution to be able to tell the difference between cows and humans and loose cow, loose cow, get him. One person screamed. The others roared a frenzied roar and took off after the man, who was holding a bundle of onion seeds in his hands. It really should have been old hat at this point, but the man had gotten excited about being able to deliver his homeland from such a weird and deadly problem. He ran until he couldn't run any anymore. He ran home. He slammed the gate open, and ran to the front door, pounding on it, begging his sister to open up. They were going to kill him. The door flew open, and the sister, half surprised, said no, they weren't going to kill him, because she was. And she slid the knife through the bundle of seeds and into his stomach. As he staggered back, seeds poured out on the ground, and she grinned. She knew he would be back. She had been waiting for this day. The cow couldn't keep himself from coming back and trying to trick her. Well, this was for her brother and whatever the cow had done to him all those years ago. She won. The man, our protagonist, staggered back a few feet, and then slumped down in the soil. He died, gripping what remained of the bundle of seeds. That night, the sister ate well, as revenge against the cow that had taken her brother from her. Life went on in the village. Weeks passed, then months. Then, the sister noticed something. Outside, in the soil, green shoots had come up, in a haphazard trail. She pulled one of the weeds up, and then smelled the aroma. It was strange, a little pungent, yet pleasant. She sniffed it again, and took a bite. Instantly, the world felt like it came into focus. She looked out on the fields, seeing cattle. She looked to the village, seeing people. She saw that cows were hooved bovine that walked on four legs. She saw that people were like intelligent hairless apes that didn't have hooves and walked on two legs. It was so simple now. And then her shoulders slumped. Oh, her memories were different now too seeing the difference between cows and humans, she saw now that she had killed not one of her brothers, but both of them. The one that returned from his travels was only trying to help them see the truth. She didn't make the same mistake, though. She made actual beef dishes and snuck onions in so that people's eyes would be opened and her, you know, chest and skull would not. When the city was seeing things clearly, they spread the word of onions to other towns. People at first were skeptical. But by this point, everyone had been hurt. Everyone had lost someone by being unable to tell the difference between cows and humans. All of them wanted to move forward. And as they did, the sister was sure to tell the story of her brother, the person who dreamed of a better world, who knew it had to exist, and who traveled the world looking for the solution who was so eager to help out humanity that he died for it. The story was fun because, well, the central premise is kind of like a body snatcher story but with people not being able to tell the difference between humans and cows. Like, there's a fundamental terror to humans not trusting each other, and then hunting and killing and eating each other, that's immediately undercut by thinking fellow humans are super smart, tricky cows. I also like that the only villain in this story was ignorance and misunderstanding, and as soon as people were able to make things right, they took the opportunity and did so, eating an onion, to inoculate themselves against, yes, human-cow-face blindness. If you'd like to support the show, there's still a membership thing on the site. For more than the price of a gallon of jet fuel, like 20 cents more, but still, you can get extra episodes and ad-free versions of this show that can't power a jet. I was actually surprised to see that you could buy actual jet fuel so cheap. I guess that's only one gallon, though, and you have to have a jet to go with it. Anyway. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. No jet required. The creature this time is the Ziz, or Ziz. It's from Hebrew folklore. Known as the Leviathan of the Air, it's more than 500 miles tall. According to NASA, that's well into space, and it has the ability to darken the Earth when it opens its wings. The OG kaiju, the Z's committed untold destruction when it had a baby. The single egg that fell from a mommy's Z's destroyed 300 cedar trees, which is not a lot of cedar trees for a giant egg, and two whole cities, which is a lot of cities for one egg and really should have kind of gone first in the destruction inventory. Originally created to protect a smaller species of birds, the Z's failed massively because those all died. I don't know where the Z's is now, but I know where it's going to be, on some dinner plates. For a select group of pious people, this creature, along with its ocean counterpart, the Leviathan, will be served as a reward for people who keep certain dietary restrictions and stay pious to the end, something to look forward to. Well, unless you're a Z's. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.